Good morning. Our scripture today is found in Mark 10, 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit at one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to him, to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism which, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man cannot be served but to serve, came not to serve, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things I really love about Jesus is that when his disciples behave in ways that are foolish and immature, he doesn't reject them. Doesn't that make you happy? This is a story about all 12 of Jesus' closest disciples acting very foolish, behaving in immature, sinful ways. And Jesus is so patient and loving with them. I just love the fact that Jesus doesn't kick us out of the family. Often when I come up here on Sunday mornings, I start by saying, good morning, family of God. And isn't it amazing that we're still in the family after all the stuff we've done? But he loves us. He's patient. And one of the things that we learn as we read the Gospels is that when the disciples start acting foolish and immature and having conflict with one another... Not only does Jesus not kick them out of the family, but he usually takes this as an opportunity to invite them deeper into the reality of the kingdom of God. He's patient. He loves them. And he takes these moments to teach them. In this text, the disciples are being very foolish. And it all starts with James and John. We read in verse 35 and 36 that they come to Jesus and say, do for us whatever we want. Often that's our attitude when we come to Jesus. And let's just say from the beginning of the sermon today that that's not really a great attitude, right? It should be Jesus. We want to do whatever you want. But they come to Jesus saying, do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus responds by saying to them, what do you want me to do for you? And this is a question that I want us to think about today. The Holy Spirit made sure that verse 36 stayed in our Bibles so that we would reflect on the question that Jesus asked James or John. Think about it for yourself personally. Jesus is saying, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? 
What do you really want? In life, most of us, most of the time, have something that we're going for that we think, if I could just get this thing, I would have peace. If I could just achieve this goal, then I would be at rest. If I could accomplish this thing, then my soul would feel full and my life would have meaning and purpose. So we keep chasing it, keep chasing it. And for some of us, it might mean succeeding in our career or it might mean finding that perfect person that you want to marry. It might mean any number of things, gaining respect within a certain community. Often we never attain the thing that we've wanted. But when we do, what we often find is that we feast on that meal. And when we're done, we're emptier than when we started. The food that the world's serving up doesn't satisfy. So Jesus is asking the disciples a probing question. What do you want? And the Holy Spirit, I think, is asking each of us today as individuals, what do you really want? What do you want? What do you want from Jesus today? Truth is, a lot of times we don't know what we want. As a matter of fact, one of my children gave a profound demonstration of a truth about human nature a few years ago. I won't name the child. Um, And in the child's defense, before I tell this story, being two is not easy, right? There's a lot of change going on. There's a lot of emotions, development that's happening. But this kid was two, and the kid was in the middle of a two-year-old classic meltdown tantrum. So there was screaming, there was yelling, there was tears, there were flailing arms and legs. And I'm trying to be a patient daddy and say, uh, hey, I love you. If you tell me what it is that you need, um, I'd be happy to see if I can help. And the child just, I want I want And I can't understand what he's saying. But eventually he gains enough composure uh, to look at me with red bloodshot eyes that are filled with sincerity and deep yearning. And he just looks me right in the eyes and says, I want, I want, I want. <laughs> and that was the end of it. He didn't know what he wanted, but he just knew he was hungry and thirsty for something, right? And uh, he and his two-year-old breakdown was communicating something that's really true about all of us for all the time. I didn't mean to use a male pronoun. It could be any of the kids. You never know which one. But all of us have been there when we were two. Probably all of us have been there when we're 12 and when we're 20 and 30. That there's a yearning in our souls for something that we think will satisfy. And Jesus asks us to think, what do you want? What do you want from me? Well, at this moment, the disciples think that they know what they want. So they respond... Verse 37, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, that's an audacious request. Let's think about what they're saying. This is James and John. Now, Jesus had a lot of disciples, both men and women. But the 12 apostles were his inner circle. But there was an inner circle within the inner circle. That was Peter, James, and John. So these are two of the three human beings that were closest to Jesus. For the last three years, they had an intimate relationship with him. These two, James and John, along with Peter, were the only ones that were up on the Mount of Transfiguration not long before this conversation. They saw Jesus transformed to where all of a sudden he was shining like lightning, brighter than the sun. And then Moses and Elijah appeared and started talking to him. And then a cloud of God's glory surrounded them all. And they heard a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son, Listen to him. So they have got glimpses of the glory of Jesus. And they've 
understood enough about him that they've become convinced he is the king. He's the Messiah, the Christ that they have been waiting for to come rescue Israel and deliver God's people. They're excited about that. And now they're walking with Jesus to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to be glorified. And what they think that means is that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to finally flex his power, get rid of all his enemies, overthrow the Roman Empire, overthrow the corrupt establishment of the chief priest and the Sanhedrin. He's going to sit on the throne of David as a king, and he's going to rule over the political sphere and the religious sphere. That's what they mean when they say, when you're coming in your glory. And when they say, I want, we want to sit on your right and your left, they're saying, let us be number two and three within the universal reign that you're about to establish. That's an audacious request. And the thing is, Jesus really is going to Jerusalem to be glorified, but not in the way that they think. So Jesus responds by saying, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's shifting the question. They're concerned about how are we going to get status for ourselves in the kingdom of God? And Jesus is saying, are you willing to follow the king all the way to the destination that he's going to? The cup that he's talking about is the cup of suffering. Baptism is a symbol of death and resurrection. He's saying, are you willing to suffer with me? Are you willing to sacrifice with me? Are you willing to die with me? James and John probably don't fully understand what he's saying, but the metaphors are clear enough that they they understand he's saying, have you counted the cost to follow me? Are you ready to go with me? During this period of transition, and they very quickly say, we are, we're ready. Let's do this. Let's go. They answer much too quickly. They don't understand what they're talking about. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? We are able. Not long after this, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is going to sweat drops of blood. Praying to his father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. But the disciples answer quick. We're able. Jesus still loves them. They're clueless. They're arrogant. They're self-centered. But he still loves them. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus still loves you. I don't know if you felt like a discipleship success or a discipleship failure this week. How good you feel like you're doing at following Jesus. But here's the thing. A church is a community of disciples of Jesus, which is a community that is continually sustained by grace. We're constantly loving our master and pursuing him and trying to obey him. We're constantly failing and falling short. And he still loves us. It's his love that sustains us. And he says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now, this is remarkable because Jesus sees them in their present state of folly and immaturity, but he also knows where they're going. He knows that they're going to abandon him when he's arrested. But then he knows that they're going to witness his crucifixion. And then he knows he's going to appear to them, them after he has risen from the grave. And then he knows he's going to pour out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They're going to get filled with the Holy Spirit. They're going to be transformed They're going to become great leaders. And before it's all done, James and John will have new priorities. Their hearts will reflect the heart of God and they will suffer and be persecuted and face martyrdom for Christ. He sees beyond their present immaturity to where he's taking them as he does for us. But then he says, 
But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant because it is not for whom, but, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, what that means in verse 40 is somewhat ambiguous. Jesus is saying something deep and powerful, which should pause, which should cause us to pause and think. He might be saying. Who receives the honored place in the kingdom of God, the consummated kingdom of God, when I return in my glory and make a new heavens and new earth has been planned in the councils of my father from eternity past. It's not something that we're deciding on this walk, James and John. That might be what he's saying. But actually, I think probably he's saying something different. Because one of the themes of Mark's gospel is that King Jesus really is going to Jerusalem to be glorified. But his glory is going to be most fully revealed in his suffering and death. Tertullian, the second century Christian, says he was enthroned on the tree. When he hung on the cross, that's when he revealed who he was as King of kings and Lord of lords. How could that be The place where Jesus is glorified. What could that mean? The cross is a symbol of shame and death and failure. But Jesus is going to transform the cross because on the cross, what we're seeing is the fullest manifestation in the history of the world of the fact that our creator God is a God of radical self-giving love. A God who loves his creatures enough not only to create us from nothing, but when we rebel against him. And choose to participate in evil. He's willing to come all the way from heaven to the depths of death and hell. In order to suffer with us and for us. So that we can be redeemed. That cross reveals that love and humility are at the heart of God's greatness. So he's going to be glorified on that cross. And in Mark chapter 15. When Mark tells the story about Jesus being hung on the cross, he's careful to echo these words of Jesus and say, on his right and on his left were two criminals. To James and John, it may be just saying, you don't understand the nature of my glory. Right now, the Romans are preparing the people that are going to be hung on my right and left when I come in my glory. Whatever it means, Jesus is causing the disciples to rethink their priorities. What do you want? What do you want? Now the other ten hear about this. And the text says that the other ten are indignant. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they begin to be indignant at James and John. You can just imagine this. Who do you think you are? Jesus said it was prepared for somebody else. Probably me, right? They're they're starting to argue about who's the greatest. They're still concerned about... Their status, their power in the kingdom of God. They haven't been hearing what Jesus has been telling him. If you have if you have the Bible, you can just glance up a little bit and you'll see that right before this, Jesus told them when they get to Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over to the Romans and they're going to execute him and they're going to flog him and he's going to suffer. and He's going to die. And then the third day he's going to rise again. But it just hasn't penetrated their consciousness. They don't believe it. They don't understand it. They don't have a category for a suffering, dying and rising Messiah. They're just not listening. If you flipped a little further to the left in chapter nine, you would see Jesus has already had a conversation with them about true greatness because they were already arguing about which of them was the greatest. And Jesus said to them, you don't get it. If you want to be great, you've got to become like a child. Whoever's great among you will be a servant. This is not the first time they've had this talk. 
And so now they're still arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus, with his patient love, calls all the 12 together and says, let's talk. Let's have a teaching moment. I hope we never get in a big church fight. Hasn't it been great to have five for five weeks of unity together as a new church family? 100% unity so far. Five out of five. But if we do ever get into a church fight, heaven forbid, Jesus doesn't reject churches that are fighting. He calls them together. He says, come on, let's talk. I want to teach you. This is an opportunity to go deeper into the kingdom of God. And he says some really profound things to them. Let's read it one more time. Jesus called them to him and said to them, verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. We'll pause right there. He's saying the world has a concept of greatness, but I'm about to give you a new concept of greatness. Jesus is not saying don't seek glory and don't seek greatness. He's saying you're seeking foolish glory and foolish greatness. That's not really glorious and great. That will make you a slave. I'm calling you to true glory and true greatness. But he's saying the world has a concept of greatness, which is all about who successfully flexes their money or their power or their fame or their reputation in a way that gets other people to give them what they want so that other human beings become means to the end of gratifying my desires or fulfilling my ego in some way. That's who the world celebrates. That was true when Jesus talked. It's true 2000 years later. The people we celebrate, for the most part, are people that have climbed some ladder of success, that they've got power, that they can get other people to give them what they want, so they feel good. And then Jesus says something we need to hear in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. I'm calling you to a radically different way of being human. I'm calling you to a radically different way of life. The kingdom of God is going to require you to be transformed at the level of your deepest loves. The way you answer the question, what do you want, needs to change. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That's our key word. Everybody say servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Think about how shocking and maybe offensive that is. He's saying, if you seek greatness the way the world seeks greatness, that will make you a slave. If you want to be great in truth, you have to make yourself a slave of one another. That's a radical statement. Now, to ask what Jesus means by this, we have to... Focus on verse 45. Verse 45 is the most important one. Verse 45. Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to imitate an example that I have set for you. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, Let's dissect that. Let's think about that. First key phrase, the son of man. Everybody say son of man. When Jesus talks about the son of man, he's talking about himself. But then the question is, why does he call himself the son of man? 
The answer comes from the prophet Daniel. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And in Daniel, chapter 7, Daniel has been seeing some wild visions about God's sovereign reign over human history. Aren't you glad to know that God is in charge of the big picture and all the little details of world history? There's all sorts of evil people. There's all sorts of spiritual forces of evil in the world rebelling against God and doing all sorts of terrible things in ways that don't make sense. And yet, in some way, we cannot understand. We know that our God is Lord over all of it. And he is going to bring it to his perfect purpose for his glory and for the joy of all who trust in him. And Daniel seeing visions about that, about how God's working through all the ups and downs of world history And then in verse 13, he says this. I'm going to read you verses 13 and 14 of Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's the phrase. Everybody say son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jews during the time of Jesus rightly interpreted this as a prophecy about the Messiah, that one like a son of man. In other words, a human being is going to come before the ancient of days, that is God, and God is going to give to this human being authority that is going to be over all nations and it's going to last forever. And now here's Jesus, the God man, the eternal son of God, the father who has now broken into human history in a new way. He's come amongst us as a vulnerable human being who is fully human and fully God. And Jesus is saying, I am the son of man. I am the king. I have authority. I will rule over all nations and forever. But then he says this. Even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, I'm the one you've been waiting for from Daniel 7, 13 through 14, who came with all power and authority. But you'll notice since I've been walking among you, I haven't asked anybody to shine my shoes. I haven't commanded anybody to follow me around, fanning me with palm branches and feeding me grapes. As a matter of fact, the whole life of Jesus has been a lifestyle of serving other people. When he sees sick people, what does Jesus do? He heals them. When he sees hungry people, what does Jesus do? When he sees blind people, what does Jesus do? He opens their eyes everywhere that he's going all the time. He's serving other people. When he sees people that are confused and wandering around and Spiritual desperation, he unfolds for them God's word. He teaches them. Of course, we know before long he's going to be clothing himself like a servant and washing the feet of his disciples. I've got all authority, all power. I'm the truly great one, but I came among you as one who serves. When he says that he comes among as one who serves, he's also identifying himself with the mysterious servant figure in the the book of Isaiah. Now, A lot of us probably aren't very familiar with the prophet Isaiah, but I hope we will be before long because the prophet Isaiah is so so full of spiritual wisdom and riches. And famously, in the latter half of the book of Isaiah, the prophet sings several songs about a mysterious figure who is a suffering servant of God. And sometimes 
He seems to be identified with Israel and sometimes with Isaiah and sometimes with Israel's Messiah. But Jesus and Mark, throughout this section of Mark's gospel, have been repeatedly emphasizing that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all the servant songs of Isaiah. And most especially, he's identifying with Isaiah chapter 53. If you've got your Bible, now you can flip over to Isaiah. We just read Daniel chapter 7. There's going to be a king, the son of man, who gets power and authority over all nations forever. And the radical thing that Jesus is saying is that king is the same servant that Isaiah 53 was talking about. And I'm going to read you a few verses about the servant from Isaiah 53. Starting in verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. This is our word shalom that I make us say every other week. Everybody say shalom. How do we get shalom? The servant of God, who is also the king of kings, will be pierced for us. Isaiah 53 is answering the question. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is saying, I am the king who has come with power to liberate the nations and to exalt my people Israel. And the way that I'm going to do it is by suffering to absorb your sin and all of its consequences. To serve you. He makes that very clear in the last part of this sentence. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that word ransom is our other key word. Everybody say ransom. This Greek word translated ransom means to pay a price to set somebody free from bondage. So if your cousin gets into debt or gets carried off in a battle and becomes a slave and you want to set your cousin free from slavery, you've got to get a big ransom price and come pay the price, the price so that this slave can become free. And what Jesus is saying here is that I'm going to the cross so that you slaves can be free. And that's what greatness looks like. This is my testimony. What was I a slave to? I was a slave to sin. I wanted and I wanted and I wanted. That little two-year-old was me. I want, I want, I want. And I felt like I deserved what I wanted. And I feel like if other people shouldn't get in the way of what I want. And if, but if you do, I might be willing to hurt you. That's called sin. Original sin. And I was a slave to my sinful impulses. And because of that, without really fully realizing it, the Bible now teaches me, I was a slave to being manipulated by spiritual forces of evil that I couldn't see around me. And I was following the destructive pattern of the world, of the culture, just like lemmings. Have you ever seen a video of lemmings running off a cliff together? It's amazing. There's a whole crowd of them. They're just running off a cliff together. That's what the Bible calls the world. And it says we were slaves to sin. We were slaves to Satan. We were slaves to the power of the world. We were slaves to death and to the fear of death. And Jesus said, I came to set slaves free. And I did it. I came to do it through my cross. The cross of Jesus is God taking on himself John Mark's worst sins. 
and his biggest ones and his little ones, all of them, and all of their consequences and bearing their full weight and exhausting all of the consequences of my sin, paying the price so that John Mark can be free and so that you can be free. And anybody here who trusts in Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace is if you trust in Jesus, doesn't matter how bad you've been, you are free because Jesus paid your price. That's what we were singing about. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. We're set free because the king, the, the son of man, is the suffering servant who paid the price for us. Now, as we reflect on that glory of the gospel, now we've got to back up into the verses right before that. Jesus is saying, I'm your master. I'm your teacher. You're my disciples. That means you're following in my footsteps. I'm calling you out of a false pursuit of a false greatness and a false glory that will make you a slave. I'm calling you to know God and to pursue a true glory, a true greatness, which looks like a life lived in intimacy with God, which also means a life pouring yourself out joyfully to bless other people. Jesus came to set us free and to give us life so that we could flourish in every way. Spiritually, first of all, that's the best one. We can be forgiven of our sins. Aren't you glad you're forgiven of your sins, Christian? But aren't you glad that God also cares about your other stuff in your life? Like when you pray for God, I'm sick, please heal me. He's not like, hey, you should be more focused on your spiritual need right now. He hears you and he heals you, right? And when you can't, don't know how to pay the bills and you pray and ask God, let's just take a show of hands. Anybody ever not know how to pay the bills and you prayed and God paid your bills? Okay, a lot of hands going up around here. What we're saying is God cares for all of your life. He cares about your spiritual flourishing. He cares about your physical flourishing. He cares about your relational flourishing. And Jesus came to joyfully bless you in all these different areas. A life that has been set free by King Jesus is a life that has, uh, is now lived in communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is at work constantly, joyfully thinking, how can I seek the, my, the spiritual flourishing of my neighbors by sharing the gospel and teaching the Bible and making disciples and praying for people? How can I seek the physical flourishing of my neighbors by making sure my neighbors are healthy and they have what they need in terms of food and medical care? How can I seek the mental and emotional flourishing of my neighbors by being a good friend, by listening, by praying for people, by being a counselor, by whatever it may be? How can I seek the relational flourishing of my neighbors. In other words, we're just supposed to love our neighbors like we love ourselves. We want to thrive in every way, right? And Jesus is saying, that's what true greatness looks like. Now, we're four weeks into a little sermon series, which is all about trying to establish what is our culture, Christ Community Church at Rancho Village. What's our culture? What are our embodied values? How are we trying to live? Remember where we started the first week? Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. We said our first love as a community is Jesus. Then we talked about God's word because we want to know Jesus in truth, not a fantasy made up version of Jesus. We love the Bible because the Bible is God's word that he breathed out to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus and to equip us. And then last week, Jared talked to us about prayer. So we're we're people that love Jesus. We're people that love our Bible. We're people that pray. And what we're trying to say today is we want to have a culture that pursues true glory and true greatness, which means we're not trying to compete with one another 
for status or position or recognition in this or any other community. Instead, we're trying to follow Jesus on a path of self-giving love and service that we don't seek any human recognition. We're living to bless one another and we're living for the day in which King Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, as I was reflecting on this this week, I got a little happy and excited in my soul and was beginning to just thank God for you. Because I already see this value being lived out in this church in so many beautiful ways. I just wrote down a few of them. The dangerous thing is this. I'm going to leave off some obvious examples of ways people have served me that I don't mention. And then I'm going to mention somebody who doesn't like to be mentioned from the pulpit. So you're going to be embarrassed. But this is the community of grace. So just forgive me for everything I do wrong right now. Okay. But I was just thinking first about uh, the last couple weeks when the Shilohs had a baby. And a couple women in our church got everybody organized. And everybody's taking them. Food all the time to serve them. That was beautiful. Anybody get paid for that? Nobody got paid for it. Okay. It was just because you loved them, right? Just because you loved them. It made me think about a couple weeks ago when I told you we're having all these team meetings and we sat down to talk about children's church and children's Sunday school. And I sat down with Steph and Yannette and I just had them ask them to share the stories of how they got involved. And Yannette basically just said, well, one day I showed up and there were some kids that needed to be taken care of. So I just started taking care of them and I became like the children's Sunday school person. She just stepped in to serve. And with Steph, it was basically just that I went to her and said, we've got some kids that really need to be taken care of. Would you come help organize our team to take care of them? And she did. They stepped in and served. And not for recognition, not for money, not getting that. They did it because they wanted to bless people. Makes me think of the sound team in the back. Can we turn around and clap for them? You guys are great all the time. (laughs) Makes me think of the greeters that get here early. Makes me think of all of our community group leaders and Sunday school teachers not getting paid for that, but they're opening their homes, they're preparing Bible studies, they're getting here, Sunday school teachers, early on Sundays to share God's word with people. Community group leaders are not just hosting meetings. Many of our community group leaders are opening their homes throughout the week to minister to people, ministry of hospitality and listening. Makes me think of Jared Stevenson and everybody that's on the CAP team and on the Neighborhood Ministries team that are going out week after week after week to share the Bible. And listen, if you're doing that apartment ministry, it's not like neat and pretty all the time. Often you're meeting in somebody's home, but then the person isn't there. And then you're meeting outside and it's hot or it's cold or it's rainy. And it can be discouraging because you lead a bunch of people to Christ and you've got a discipleship group that's growing. And then they all move out over a few weeks and you're starting over. It can be tiring work. But remember, where's Brooke? There you are, Brooke. Remember when Brooke was baptized last week? Wasn't that awesome? You know how we met Brooke? It's because Chauncey and Steph Bug were walking around at Oak Creek, and they met you, right? Or maybe somebody else. I think it was them. Sarah. It was Sarah. Okay. And and met Brooke. And now, week after week, she's become into that apartment Bible study, and there's been a lot of people that have come to know the Lord like that. Or we could think about our school's ministry team, people that are going, giving time every week. Nobody sees it. Nobody knows it, but they're going as reading buddies to serve in those schools, or they're going to teach a Bible study in those schools. Or I think about... Gavin and Jordan and Jared, Jordan Hutchings, and all, the, all their team that are constantly hanging out with teenagers and college students. Let me just tell you something to the young people. There's a lot of you over here. We don't have very much energy like you guys anymore, okay? I'm old, and every year I have less energy. And yet they're running around with these guys till midnight. Why? Because they love them. They're not in it for the money. The hourly rate is shameful. We've got to work on that. But they're serving because they love 
The building is clean today because Tori and Alan are in here all the time when nobody else is in this place. Serving behind the scenes. Nobody sees it. Nobody, um, they're just doing it out of love. They're just doing it to serve. Speaking of the building, when Christ Community Church started moving our stuff over here because we've merged and we were trying to figure out how to set up the offices, it became clear that there wasn't quite enough office space for our staff now because our staff was big. So that was exciting. We need to move some things around. And I showed up one morning and Jordan and Alan, Jordan Hutchings and Alan were just building a wall. So I have an office now. Isn't that amazing? They were just serving, building a wall. Yeah, we should clap for them. It was great. I think about every Monday that I come up here for the last several weeks, I've at least once seen Nate Goggin bringing in Gatorades, setting up for to open the gym on Monday night so that some guys from all over the community can have Gatorade while they're playing basketball and hearing a devotional because he wants them to have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we could go on and on and on and on. But aren't you thankful to be a part of this community? That's what I'm saying. Now, we want to give glory to God for that. We're not seeking glory for anybody else for that. We give glory to God for that. And what our text is saying is, the, the, if, if any of that is happening among us, which it is, that is evidence that the gospel of grace is taking root in our hearts. That's what it is. It's not because we're such great people. It's because we recognized I was dead in my sin and I was a slave to sin and to death and to Satan and Jesus the eternal God-man, the Son of Man, the King of kings and Lord of loves, lords, loved me enough as an individual to give up everything to pay my price and to serve me. And that makes me want to serve somebody. That's how the gospel works. We want to show our love for Jesus, but what do you give to the Jesus who has everything? He says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. We want to create a culture of church where everybody is happy to serve everybody and nobody desires any credit or status or recognition. When we start seeking credit and status and recognition for ourselves is when we start quenching the Holy Spirit. When instead we say all the glory and attention goes to Jesus and my joy is just to be a channel of his healing mercy that he's poured out into my heart without seeking recognition. I want to give it away to others. Now there's power. And friends, I'm not, I don't want to like overpromise to, to have a ministry impact. In South Oklahoma City is going to take a long time. It's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to involve a lot of sacrifice and a lot of setbacks. But I know that if there's a community that will abide in Jesus and love our neighbors well consistently over years and decades without seeking recognition, the Holy Spirit of the living God will do mighty things in this community. That is certain. Because the Bible promises it. You will bear fruit that remains if you do not give up. So, I just want to pray for us. I just want to pray for us. That Jesus, as we listen to him saying, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? That those words of Jesus will get into our hearts. The Holy Spirit will gently help us see when we get off track and we start going for the wrong things and wanting the wrong things. That we can come back home to abide in his love. True greatness, true glory means to rest in the gospel of grace and freely give as we've freely received. Let's bow our heads together. I just want to give you a moment to pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you, show you if there's any particular step of faith or obedience that he's calling you to this morning. And I'm going to pray for us.
Most high God, we love the fact that though you are higher and more transcendent than we could imagine, you came lower than we could have anticipated to serve us. Jesus, thank you for serving me, for giving your life as a ransom for my sins. I want to pray, first of all, that that gospel, that good news would be so, so real to us. There's anybody here that has not ever taken the step to trust Jesus. This would be the day. And for every Christian, we would just be overwhelmed again with the knowledge of your love for us. Even when we're failing, even when we're focused on the wrong things, you never reject us. You never stop loving us. You keep calling us deeper into your kingdom. You keep serving us. I pray that that reality would free us up, that we would serve in the church, not out of some sense of social obligation or duty or for some quest for recognition, but that we would serve our church and our community out of the overflow of gratitude with great joy and that you would be glorified. Lord, I pray that we would neither desire nor receive glory for any of us as individuals or for our brand or our institution, but that the cry of our hearts would be glory to Jesus, the Lamb who is slain. And that as we live that way, many would be drawn to Christ. The wounds of the broken would be bound up. Your truth would shine light into people's minds. Hearts would be healed. Families would be healed. Relationships would be healed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray it in Jesus' name.